Hi, my name is Ethan. I study mechanical engineering at the University of Melbourne. Today I'll be reading for you 2 Timothy chapter 4. Before I read, I invite you, let's pray together. Dear Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will keep our hearts and ears open to hear what you have to say to us, that we will learn from you fruitfully as we read today. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas is in love with this present world. He has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offence, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Well, hi again, everyone. I hope you have been loving NTE, and I've certainly loved the opportunity to open God's Word with you. And we come to the last chapter of 2 Timothy, 
We've been thinking about going to the ends of the earth with the gospel, the great news of Jesus Christ. Chapter one, we talked about going with courage. Chapter two, we thought about going with godliness. In chapter three, we saw that it's essential to go with the Bible. And now in chapter four, we're going to be thinking about going to the end. And so I'd love you to have your Bible open at 2 Timothy 4. I'm particularly going to zoom in on verses 6 to 8, but we'll also be looking at quite a number of other verses in this chapter. Now, it seems to me that often in life, our experiences are shaped by our expectations. C.S. Lewis put that in a very striking way when he said this. He said, imagine a group of people who are all living in the same building. Half of them think it is a hotel and half of them think it is a prison. Those who think it is a hotel can't believe how bad it is. The, the beds are hard, there's no carpet, there's certainly no spa bath, there's no room service. Uh, it's, it's a miserable place as far as they're concerned. The other half of the people think it's a prison. They're actually pleasantly surprised by how good it is. Well, there's a, there's a bed, there's a toilet, there's a few supplies. It's, it's actually much better than they feared. Well, I wonder in life, are you more like an optimistic inmate or a disgruntled hotel guest? I think our culture often makes us feel like we should be in the honeymoon suite. We feel entitled to a very comfortable life. We expect cars and houses and work and coffee and food deliveries and uninterrupted internet connection and great educational opportunities and holidays. Little wonder then that COVID 19 has messed with us so badly. It, it's pulled the rug from under us. It's, it's ripped from us uh, all our sure work plans, our pleasures and enjoyments, our overseas travel. It's messed with an entitled life. That should at least make us stop and think about what our expectations are. What do you expect in life? And what do you expect in the Christian life? I think this final chapter of 2 Timothy is so helpful. It comes actually from the final chapter of Paul's life. And he takes stock, not from a hotel room, but from a prison cell. And his reflections really help us to work out what our expectations of life should be as well. I'm going to suggest three expectations from this chapter. And the three go together. And I think together they're a powerful package and a wonderful way to live. Well, the first expectation is this. We expect a tough race. That should be our expect expectation. We expect a tough race. Look at verse 7 
I have fought the good fight, Paul says. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Both fight and race are taken from the world of the Olympic Games, the ancient Olympics. Fighting probably refers to boxing. The race refers to athletics. And the reality is both are hard. In boxing, you get hit and it hurts. In running, you get exhausted. Even excellent athletes sometimes fall down, collapse at the end of a race. It's exhausting. And that's how Paul has found Christian life and ministry. You actually see that rippling through this chapter. It's been hard. It talks about a bunch of things that I think are just difficult. I'll, I'll just highlight some of them. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about people who have itching ears and run off to other teaching. And it's hard when that happens, when people leave your church and the good sound teaching there and go off after the fairy floss down the road. It's hard when that happens. Verses 9 and 10, he talks about Demas, who's loved the world and departed because of his love for the world. And then he talks about a bunch of other friends who have just disappeared for various good reasons. But it's hard, isn't it, when people desert and when people walk away from the faith and when just good friends aren't around when you need them. Then in verses 14 and 15, he talks about an outright enemy. He names Alexander the coppersmith. And he says there in verse 15, he did me great harm. Seems like this guy was a real bad piece of work. But that's a reality. There are people around who are real opponents of gospel ministry and opponents of Christians, maybe even personal opponents. And, and it's so hard when there are people like that in your life. Then in verse 16, he says, when he was on trial in Rome, no one, he says, came to stand by me, but all deserted me. In one of the most critical moments of his life, he felt utterly alone. That's hard. All up, it's a pretty sobering picture, isn't it? Probably the last chapter ever penned by the Apostle Paul. It's got a lot of hard stuff in it. But actually, if you hang around church, hang around CU, you hang around gospel ministry for any length of time, I think you might find this is pretty realistic. People leaving for greener pastures? Tick. Uh, friends who are disappointing? Tick. Loneliness? We never expected. Tick. Outright opposition that we struggle to make sense of. Tick. It's hard. But hard is not necessarily bad. Actually, most things in life that are worthwhile are hard. A few months ago now, uh, Australians sat on the edge of their seats and just lapped up Ariana Titmus winning gold medals at the Olympics like they were going out of fashion. It was exciting. I mean, it almost made me want to be a swimmer. Uh, glamorous, successful. But what we didn't see is behind that, hours and hours of training, seven or eight hours a day. Diet, 
uh, endless exercise regimes, huge amounts of self-discipline, injuries. We don't see that, but behind Olympic glory, there's an incredible amount of hard work. It's true for other fields too, isn't it? I mean, study is hard, isn't it? Uh, running a business is hard. Having babies is hard. I haven't done it, but I've watched it and it looks unbelievably hard. If most worthwhile things in life are hard, then it shouldn't surprise us if the most worthwhile thing in life, following Jesus and living for him, shouldn't surprise us if that's hard as well. Friends, hard is no reason to give up. If you're finding Christian life hard, it doesn't mean that you're not up to it. It doesn't mean that you're missing out on God's best plan for your life. It just means that you're a reg regular boxer, a regular athlete in God's team. And Paul actually uses two images in the previous verse, in verse 6, that give his perspective on this and show that he's not actually bothered by it being a fight and a race and being hard. Look at the images in verse 6. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. First he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. It's an image from the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, a lamb, say, would be sacrificed on behalf of the sinner. But then the worshipper in some of the offerings would also pour out over the offering and over the altar wine as a thank offering and, a, and an act of commitment and, and uh, an offering to God. Pour out perfectly good wine, a costly sacrifice of thanks to God. And Paul is saying, that's what my hard life is. It's like a bottle of red poured out in thankfulness to God to honour him. It's a good thing, he's saying. And that's what Paul's death will be too. We've seen that he's, he's anticipating a likely death sentence. But his death will not so much be an unjust execution by the Romans, but an offering of thanks and praise to God. That he has death in view is clear as we move to the second image in verse 6. He says, the time of my departure has come. The time of my departure, literally it's the time of my loosing. Now, an optimistic view would be it would be the loosing of his chains and he'd be set free, but that doesn't seem to be what he anticipates. It's more likely a different loosing. This, this word was often used for loosing of ropes as a boat was about to sail. And actually, uh, that's, that's possibly a, a beautiful way to see the image here. Uh, Paul's boat is about to be untied from the shores of this world, loosened, and he'll depart for other shores. And for Paul, those other shores 
are a better place to be. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, he uses exactly the same word. Remember where he says, I desire to depart, to be loosed, and be with Christ, which is better by far. You see, Paul, as he sits on death row in Rome, is not afraid to die because he knows that when his boat sails, it will sail to glory. It will sail to a place where he will see Jesus. He'll see his Savior. He'll see the one that he's served all these years. And being with the Lord will be better by far. It will far outweigh anything that he's been through and suffered in this life. Of course, if you're living mainly for money, and popularity and success and fun, if you're living for this world, then hardship is awful and death is devastating. But if you have eternal hope, if you believe that this life is followed by something far better, being with Jesus and being part of his eternal kingdom, if that's your expectation, then you can cope with a hard race. You can cope with a tough fight. And you can cope with the prospect of death. But now, it's not just that things will eventually come right, as though we just grit our teeth and somehow get through to the end. No, Paul's first expectation is a tough race. But I want to go to a second expectation we see in this chapter. We expect great strength. We expect great strength. Uh, Paul wrote this letter in Greek. And the word order in Greek is a bit different from our English translations. Our English versions say in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. If I read it that way, it kind of sounds like, I've done it. It was tough. I pressed through. Timothy, be a man. Run hard. Fight hard. You make sure you finish too. No pressure. Just make sure you finish. Kind of sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? Paul's done it. But actually, the word order in Greek is somewhat different. And I think it gives it a different accent. In Greek, it says... The good fight I have fought. The race I have run. The faith I have kept. Why backwards is the sentence constructed? Well, uh, it, it could be that Paul's watched so much Star Wars, now like Yoda, he does speak. But it's probably not that likely. I think it's more likely that the word order is making an emphasis. The emphasis is not that I've fought, I've run. The emphasis is it was a good fight. It was a good race. And Paul has finished by the good grace of God. And we actually see that later in the chapter. I want to take you to around verses 16 and 17, where we see something really fantastic, I think. Verse 16 is, is kind of one of these 
Pretty tough verses. At my first offence, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. No one there for me. But then verse 17 is like a correction. No, hang on. Someone was there. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the gentle Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. It turns out he wasn't alone, was he? The Lord was with him. I'm not sure how exactly the Lord was with him. I don't know whether it was a physical presence, was this a vision, uh, some kind of revelation, an audible voice. Uh, as an apostle, Paul had many of those experiences. Um, he experienced many things that we don't as non-apostles. But why did the Lord strengthen him? Did you see what it said in verse 17? It, it was not so that he could have a happy retirement. It was not so he could have a nice peaceful end and cruise uh, to the last years of his life. It was so that he could continue the mission of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth so that all the Gentiles, all the nations will hear the message of Jesus. That's why he was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, what's that? Probably not literally the lion's mouth. Though Christians were thrown to the lions, it was extremely rare for a Roman citizen like Paul to be thrown to the lions. It's an image, I think, of him being rescued from fierce opposition. And actually in verse 18, Paul generalizes that and he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we shouldn't just think that this is an apostle thing, that the Lord only rescues and delivers people like Paul. Actually, this is true for all followers of Jesus. And there's an indication of that right in the last verse of this letter. You know, we've seen all the way through, this is a letter to Timothy. But it's a letter to Timothy that the whole church and all God's people are meant to overhear. So verse 22, the last verse of the letter says, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And that last word, you, is plural. Uh, we don't have a, a plural you in English, but Greek does. And it's like, grace be with yous, yous guys. Grace with all yous guys. That's what Paul is saying, not just Timothy. No, the Lord's grace, the Lord's strength, the Lord's rescuing us, the Lord's watching over us so that we can continue the mission is something that God has continued to do for believers in Jesus Christ for hundreds and hundreds of years. And when it says, when Paul says in verse 18, you know, the Lord will rescue him and he'll rescue us from all evil, it doesn't mean he'll rescue us from all bad things. And it doesn't mean he'll rescue us from death. Paul did die. We will die. And bad things happen to us. But nothing happens to us outside of God's control. 
The evil one cannot have free reign in our lives and evil cannot undo us. God will keep you. God will watch over you. God will strengthen you. God will be with you. He'll be with you every moment and in every situation right until the last moment when he chooses to loose the ropes on your little boat and take you to glory. The 19th century missionary to India, Henry Martin, said, I am immortal until God's work for me is done. I am immortal until God's work for me is done. That's actually true for all of us. We won't die until we have done everything God planned for us to do. He'll keep us till then. He'll watch over us. He'll rescue us from every evil attack. And then when we've completed all the good works that God planned for us to do, the ropes will be loosened and we will sail to glory. Such confidence in God is not just a first century thing. I want to give you a 21st century example. On Palm Sunday in 2017, ISIS terrorists detonated bombs in two Egyptian Coptic churches. Those bombs killed nearly 50 parishioners, and over 100 others were injured. A few hours later, Coptic priest Father George gathered the church and preached to a packed church. I think that was the Lord's strength, just that they gathered there. What courage that is. But the real strength is in what that man preached just after these parishioners had been killed by an ISIS bombing. He preached a three-point sermon. And I just want to tell you what the points of his sermon were. It was a sermon addressed to the terrorists. His first point, thank you. Thank you because you have given believers the honour of dying for Christ and have hastened their journey to glory. His second point, we love you because Jesus Christ taught us to love our enemies. His third point, we pray for you. Because if you could taste the love of Jesus for just one moment, it would drive the hatred from your hearts. I think that is a remarkable message to preach on an occasion like that. The Lord is able to strengthen you. He gives his people unbelievable strength. Yeah, we expect a hard race. But friends, I want you to also expect great strength.
and expect that right till the end. And so that leads me to the third thing in this chapter. We also expect a glorious finish. Actually, those who were caught up in that bombing and were killed that day in 2017 expected a glorious finish, and they received it. It's interesting because I think one way or another, all of us are looking for glory. The glory of doing well, being successful, being liked, being popular, being wealthy. The glory of being beautiful, being special. There's something hardwired into us that, that longs for some kind of glory like that. Of course, most of us aren't going to make it for big time glory. Uh, you know, we're not going to win Olympic golds or Brownlow medals or Nobel Peace Prizes. And so what we do is we, we just downscale our desire for glory. We settle for smaller tastes of glory. A young hoon loves the glory of his incredibly fast, loud car. Woohoo! A girl loves the glory of her most amazing TikTok video yet, an incredible number of likes. A grey nomad likes the glory of backing his caravan so well. And we might like the glory of being so good at leading a Bible study, of preaching really well, of being an excellent trainer, the glory of being so good at sharing our faith with others. Our hearts crave glory. And you know, Paul craved glory too. The difference is, he was not looking for glory in this life. He was not looking for glory from other people. He had his eyes on the glory of God. And one day entering into God's presence and enjoying the glory of God forever. Look at verse 8. After he said in verse 7, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. He says, henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul has been running this race, and now he eyes the victory ceremony. In the ancient Olympics, they didn't run for gold medals. They ran for a, a wreath, a crown wreath. It was actually made of celery, of all things. It doesn't sound particularly glamorous to me, but it was an enormous honour to be crowned with a wreath. But as Paul nears the end of his race, running for Jesus, 
he eyes a different victory ceremony and he eyes a different crown. On the last day, he says, I will be given the crown of righteousness. Now, what is that? What kind of crown is that? Uh, is that the crown that's given to those who are righteous? Or is it the crown that makes us righteous? Or is it the crown that's righteously given? Well, if you read the commentators, you'll find them debate that because grammatically those are all possibilities. But right through Paul's teaching and all his letters, he constantly stresses that we are not made right with God. We're not righteous because of our works or our effort or our achievements. He, he's, Paul's not going to be crowned righteous because he's run hard and fought well. Paul always stresses that we are made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ alone. When we put our faith in Jesus, God credits to us, credits to our account, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. It's called the, the doctrine of justification. We're justified, declared righteous by God because of our faith in Jesus and not because of our works. Now, on the last day, on the final day when Jesus comes again, there will be a public declaration of our righteousness in Jesus Christ. That crown will make it publicly known that we are righteous in Jesus. Just as an athlete runs the race, wins the race, and then goes to the award ceremony where the race that has been won is acknowledged publicly. So we are made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And then on the last day, there is a public acknowledgement of our righteousness in Christ. Paul, you see, is about to stand on trial in Rome. And he may well be condemned to death. But in the court of heaven, he will be fully vindicated. On the last day, before all people, he will be declared to be right, right with God. And Paul hastens it so quickly, doesn't want to leave it out. And it's not just a Paul thing. He says, no, and this is for all, not only me, but also to all, he says in verse 8, who have longed for his appearing. Literally, the word there is who have loved his appearing. I love the scene at international airports in the arrivals lounge. Don't know if you remember international arrivals. They used to happen. I think they're going to resume. Uh, you, you have uh, a crowded, crowded area with people peering to see who's coming through that exit from the customs. And they look and they peer and there's no emotion on their face. Person after person comes out and there's nothing. And then all of a sudden you see them light up because through that door uh, has, has come a mum, uh, a grandma, 
a lover. And they run up to them, they hug them, they kiss. They're so delighted to see them. That's how we are to feel about the coming of Jesus. I don't know about you, I find it hard spending my life following someone I've never seen. Now we walk by faith. But oh, how good it is going to be when we see Jesus face to face. When we see the one who lived for us and died for us, the one who's been with us by his spirit, the one we've followed, the one we've served. We love the day when he will come again. When he comes again, he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. He'll usher us out of this world of pain and difficulty and the kind of stuff we've been through this last year and usher us in to his eternal kingdom. That crown of righteousness is, is a declaration of our fitness to enter into God's kingdom and to be with him forever. And you know, when we are there, it will surpass any hotel suite you can possibly imagine. And it will make any prison cell experience in this life worth it. This year has been tough, hasn't it? It's been a hard year. And actually life is tough. Living for Jesus can be tough. But one day, tough will be gone. The best we've ever experienced here will pale into insignificance compared with what we will constantly enjoy then. We can only guess at what joy is possible when there's absolutely no sin, no guilt, no shame, no sadness, no brokenness, no disappointment, no letdowns. When we are freed from all that's broken in this world, we will experience joy inexpressible. Little wonder, Paul said, I desire, I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far. So here's the picture. We expect a tough race as we live for Jesus. We expect great strength because God is with us. And we expect a glorious finish that will far outweigh any loss now. And you know, when that is your expectation, you can take far more gospel risks now. You can risk sac sacrificing your best life now when you know that actually your best life is yet to come. You can risk sacrificing some of your dreams now if you know that this life is not all there is. 
you can risk taking on hardship and opposition and criticism because you know it's only for now, it won't last forever. You could even risk changing your career pathway, changing actually your life plans to say, well, look, for this life, I'm just going to throw everything at following Jesus and the work of the gospel. Because beyond this, there's an eternity of pleasure and enjoyment in the most pure and beautiful way. At the age of 22, a young man by the name of Jim Elliott wrote this in his personal journal. He is no fool, he wrote, who gives up what he, what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot meant that, and he lived it. In 1956, at the age of 29, he and several other missionaries went to a remote village in the Ecuadorian jungle in South America. And their plan was to share the gospel with a remote tribe, the Orca people. The Orcas at the time were a pretty savage tribe and they had a very strong track record of killing those who went to them. Uh, Jim Elliott and his mates were convinced that the only thing that would change that would be if they understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they spent years learning the language and trying to build bridges with them and trying to befriend them. And eventually, after they'd, from a distance, tried to build these bridges, they went to them in order to share the gospel. But on the 8th of January, 1956, the Orca people were true to form. They murdered Jim Elliot and four other missionaries. Jim Elliot left behind a young widow. But she also believed that she is no fool who gives up what she cannot keep to gain what she cannot lose. And so after the death of her husband, Elizabeth Elliot went to the same tribe taking, again, enormous gospel risk. And in God's grace, over the next couple of years, most of that tribe was converted and came to faith in Jesus. If you expect a tough race, if you expect great strength from the Lord, and if you expect a glorious finish, you can take gospel risks like that. And so I want to leave you now with this same message. And I'd love you to take it to heart. Friends, you will be no fool if you give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose.